This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. This is a disease of our identity. It gets to the heart of some very morally and ethically charged aspects about what it means to live a good life when you're losing your ability to determine that life yourself. Hello again and welcome to Llama, the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. This episode is brought to you in association with Juvacel, the all-in-one longevity supplement that contains 10 key ingredients shown to have a positive impact on health span, as validated by scientific studies. To find out more, visit Juvacel.com. That's J-U-V-I-C-E-L-L.com. Alzheimer's disease is considered by many to be a modern-day crisis. We've talked about it before on this podcast, where we try to focus on living a long and healthy life. But it is the scourge of dementia that denies that privilege of healthy ageing to so many people. And I think it's fair to say that many of us have encountered the disease firsthand, sometimes more than once, whether it's a relative or friend who has succumbed to progressive memory loss or impaired cognition, sometimes referred to as the long goodbye because of the way that person loses all sense of who they are and who we are. So a crisis for sure. But is there cause for optimism in terms of the science and our greater understanding of Alzheimer's compared with maybe just a few short decades ago when it was considered a rare disease. My guest is Dr. Jason Carlowish, Professor of Medicine and Medical Ethics and Senior Fellow of the Centre for Bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also the author of the recently published book, The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis and What We Can Do About It. Dr. Carlos joins me from Philadelphia. Welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Good to talk to you. I use the term Alzheimer's and dementia in the same breath there in my introduction. Let me put to you the question that you pose in the first line of your book. What is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? It is the question um, that opens the book and that often opens up many a clinical encounter uh, when we get to what the diagnosis is. Simply put, dementia describes progressive disabling cognitive problems. So a person prior had no cognitive problems, but now has developed difficulties with memory, attention, multitasking, and those cognitive problems are causing disability. And that's really the key word. In other words, someone needs to help the person prepare a meal, uh, negotiate transportation from home to somewhere else, pay a bill, uh, disabling cognitive impairments. Now, there are many different diseases that cause progressive disabling cognitive impairments, one of the most common diseases is Alzheimer's disease, but it's not the only disease that causes dementia. Parkinson's disease can cause dementia. Lewy body disease causes dementia. HIV infection, if left untreated, ultimately can cause a dementia. In the 19th century and prior, uh, untreated syphilis, um, uh, tertiary syphilis caused a dementia. So dementia, disabling cognitive impairments, 
Alzheimer's one of, but not the only cause of dementia. And is there a, an element of dementia, if indeed that is an appropriate phrase? But is there, I'll, I'll phrase it like that, an element of dementia in the normal course of aging? <laughs> um, the answer is, um, it depends on how you define what you think normal aging is. <laughs> and um, in the book, I recount, for example, how, you know, until the mid of the really the last quarter of the 20th century, disabling cognitive impairments in an older adult was considered senility caused by aging. It was not considered caused by a disease. Um, and so it was normalized as this is just what happens when you get older because of extreme aging. Um, a pivotal set of events would occur in the last quarter of the 20th century that would recast that way of seeing what is uh, uh, normal aging and what is disease. Although, as I point out in the book, that work already started in the early 20th century, but then a host of bizarre events occurred from the early 20th century to the last quarter of the 20th century that had it all forgotten. Um, So now we do not think of dementia as normal aging because of several reasons, one of which is the ability to see that there is clearly pathology going on in the brain, but there are also cultural transformations that allow us to recast senility as a disease. And we can certainly talk more about that. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about that. Let's delve into some of the issues that you raise in your book. Before we do that, just tell me a little bit about yourself and your career to date. You're you're a physician and also quite a, a prolific writer. Well, yeah, I consider myself a physician and writer, and I think the one feeds the other. It's, it's truly a, a harmony or a marriage in some sense, though not everything I write about it comes from, is about medicine. But yes, I'm a, I'm a geriatrician. I, I trained in internal medicine, and then I did additional training in geriatric medicine, an unusual field, admittedly. Um, and uh, early on in my career, I made um, uh, dementia my focus um, and uh, came to the University of Pennsylvania uh, as my first faculty position, and I'm still here. I help run the Penn Memory Center, where I am talking to you right now, uh, from right now. I saw a patient earlier today. And otherwise, I divide my time between that and a host of different research projects, as well as writing projects. And this book, The Problem of Alzheimer's, is my second book. My first book was actually a novel called Open Wound, The Tragic Obsession of Dr. William Beaumont, based on true facts from the early 19th century about a physician. So you mentioned you're at the Penn Memory Center right now. Just tell me a little bit more about the work of the center. You see patients there. What is a a typical day for you? Typical day uh, depends on the day of the week. But for clinical day, which is Friday, I see patients at the Memory Center for diagnosis and also for follow-up care. And, you know, a visit to a memory center, as I recount in the book, is different than a visit to most adult doctors. Why is it different? Well, you know, to begin with, um, we just don't see the person with the problem, the memory problem, the cognitive problem, but we really encourage them to bring in someone else, a friend, a family member, spouse, adult child, um, who will uh, really serve in at least one and soon perhaps two roles, the role of an informant, we call it. It's a quirky term, but, you know, give us some history. What have you noticed? Um, and oftentimes that individual also starts to walk into the role of, of what we call the caregiver, namely that they will start to help the person who has disabling cognitive impairments accommodate their disabilities. And those visits can take about an hour or so, at least, the new patient visits. We spend a lot of time to figure out what's going on and, and what needs to be done. 
And you've clearly drawn from many of those experiences in writing your book. Yeah. Because it is, it is a beautifully written book and it is a book that, that melds a lot of personal stories, uh, personal stories obviously of your patients and their families and people you've got to know well and, uh, and your own experiences, your, your own direct experiences over the years. And, um, the way that you meld those stories with the science is, is in some ways what I try to do with, with this podcast and that is talk about current science and developments, but, I suppose, make it real by talking to, to people who've experienced situations that may be reflected yeah. in the science. Uh, why was it important or why do you feel, I assume that you do, feel it's important to do that in terms of explaining this disease to people? Well, you know, medicine is about being able to help people live in the real world. So, you know, our stories of illness are, 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 are the stories of disease. Um, that's how we figure out what disease is. I mean, my most powerful question to figure out what's wrong with someone to make a diagnosis um, is 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 a question actually. It's not a test, et cetera. It's what's a typical day, and it's essentially a narrative based question. I find out vivid details about what they can and can't do, and that really helps me figure out what's wrong with them um, and and how best to care for them. Um, uh, you know, the, the foundation of medicine is a, is a good, careful history, a story of what's going on with this individual to then arrive at a diagnosis, but also a treatment plan. Um, so, you know, narrative is essential to good medical practice, never mind good practice of geriatric medicine dedicated to, to diagnosing cognitive problems, just the good practice of medicine in general. Um, so I think story is essential to, 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 to good medicine. Um, the reciprocal of that or the sort of other side of that is, you know, my patients and their family members, as I recount in this book, they're just not in there to add a little color. They've been some of my best teachers. Um, you know, I recount in the book, in the last part of the book, a caregiver who, in the midway through his narrative of his wife's problems, suddenly blurts out, I have Alzheimer's disease. And what he's saying isn't that he has cognitive problems that are disabling, but what he's saying is, is all this work I have to do to come in here and tell you what's going on and, you know, find out what we need to do and then take her back home and, you know, take care of her. Essentially, I've got this disease, you know, and that's one of many, I think, brilliant examples of, you know, your patients are your best teachers. Um, you just have to learn how to listen. Or, as it were, their, your caregivers are the best teachers, too. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And just defining what the disease is and its implications. And uh, I take away that one of the issues for, for many people is, is this a disease or is it a disability? Are, are, are some people in denial that it's a progressive disease as opposed to something that they're just struggling with in the moment? Well, a couple points there to unpack. You know, I am of the view that Persons living with dementia do have a disease causing it. Sometimes we can't quite figure out what that disease is, but there's disease there. I'm also of the view that, and I've used it already, that persons with dementia are disabled. That is to say that they have a disability. And the reason why I think it's important to frame it as a disability is because it begs a societal obligation to provide reasonable accommodations for that disability. And I often find people are a little sort of, huh, I never thought of it that way. Um, meaning, um, they will say, well, you know, if I, you know, spinal injury or, you know, whatever physical disability, well, that's a disability and you get a curb cut or you get a, a cane or whatever, a scooter. But, uh, you know, I never thought of it, dementia as a disability. And I think that's very helpful because it, it shows the importance of the caregiver. They're just not doing tasks, right? 
they're an extension of the mind of the person with dementia. They fill in where they leave off so that the person once again can fully self-determine their life. But there's an additional point that you made that I think is really quite important, which is people accommodate to disability. Um, and, and, and we see this across a variety of disabilities, whether they're physical, their causes, physical, cognitive, or some combination of both. They figure out how to sort of feel wholly a person again. Now, there's a bit of a complexity with some of the diseases that cause dementia because there certainly are clinically some patients who will not even see that they have cognitive problems. Like, I'm fine. I don't know why I'm here. I don't understand. And there is a neurologic phenomenon known as a nosognosia, lack of awareness. You know, they don't recognize in some strokes, for example, that they uh, have a disability with, with motion, for example. And we see a nosognosia as well in persons living with dementia, whether it's caused by Alzheimer's or some of the other disorders. But we also see persons who are very aware of their cognitive problems, but they've learned to adjust to them and they sort of say, but I'm doing okay and I feel okay. And I think we have to sort of respect that as the way we accommodate to disabilities. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. And there's also the stigma associated yeah. with diseases of these kinds. And and also, and I've noticed this myself, uh, the, the way in which people, maybe family members or, or others, who will, how they will refer to someone who is suffering from dementia. And all of a sudden it becomes, oh, they behave like this or they do this, as if grouping sufferers together rather than treating them as individuals and suddenly the use of a person's name in a very personal sense seems to be forgotten and it's a, an almost distancing of yourself yeah. from the person who is suffering from the disease. Well, you know, um, stigma haunts dementia, stigma haunts the lives of persons with Alzheimer's and it's woven into the book front and center. You know, I quote how Walter Annenberg former ambassador to the United Kingdom uh, under the Reagan administration, was quoted in the New York Times about his former friend, Ronald Reagan. And I say former friend because he said, I prefer to remember him as a vigorous fellow, not the way he is now, and so I don't go see him. And so what Walter Annenberg was saying was, I'm going to stay away from my friend Ronald Reagan, who has dementia. And of course, that meant staying away from Nancy Reagan as well, Ronald Reagan's wife. And it was a very explicit, just plain statement of, distancing from someone with dementia because I don't want to see them. I don't want to see their, their disabilities. I don't want to see them. Now, you know, I, I, I also recount how a son, very wealthy son, built a whole set institute. And part of the architectural design of this neurological institute was the waiting room would not allow anyone to see anyone else. Everyone had their own personal waiting room, so you didn't have to see another patient. And, you know, I, I think stigmas haunt the lives of persons with dementia because they will say, you know, friends stay away, family stays away. Their caregivers talk about how friends and family stay away. And I think, you know, you can't just wish stigma away. You have to confront it as a cultural phenomenon. And I, I think, you know, I recount how Susan Sontag in her book, Illness as a Metaphor, 
notes how, you know, cancer's stigmas, you know, were created because you had this large, vast, complicated disease with uncertain causation and poorly understood treatments. Well, that describes Alzheimer's disease as well. And yet, you know, while treatment will help to sort of reduce stigma, we can work on our language. So, for example, you'll notice in my remarks with you, I'm not saying, well, the demented and, you know, my demented patients. I keep on saying persons living with dementia. And, and, and it's a very deliberate act on my part to distinguish the disease and its disabilities from the person who has those disabilities. And that's a change for me. If you interviewed me, say, six years ago, I'd be saying demented. <laughs> you know? I'd be saying, oh, yeah, well, amongst my demented patients, this is what we do. And now I just don't talk that way. Um, and that represents a turning in my way of thinking of them as persons. Yeah. I'm going to pause our conversation just for a moment. We'll continue in less than a minute. You're listening to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. This episode is brought to you in association with Juvacel, a novel all-in-one longevity supplement that includes 10 key research-backed ingredients shown in scientific studies to support health span. Things like resveratrol, fisetin, quercetin, terastilbene, sulforaphane, and turmeric all in a single dose. If you're interested in supporting your longevity, you probably already have a cabinet full of these single ingredients at home. Juvacel is the first product to combine them all into a single supplement to support your health span. It's also vegan, non-GMO, and sustainable. To find out more, visit juvacel.com. That's J-U-V-I-C-E-L-L.com. And now let's return to my conversation with Dr. Jason Carlwish. So I think we've touched on this a little bit. The subtitle of your book is How Science, Culture and Politics Turned a Rare Disease Mm -hmm. into a Crisis. What is the the big point that you're trying to make there? Yeah, the big point that I'm trying to make in that subtitle is science turned a rare disease into a common disease. Science and culture. Politics turned it into a crisis. So several events in the 20th century transformed what we thought was a rare disease, Alzheimer's, only seen in individuals under the ages of 60 and therefore rare. Scientific and cultural advances transformed that into a common disease. And I talked about that earlier already, how we began to rethink senile older adults didn't have senility, they had dementia, and that dementia was not caused by extreme aging, but caused by a disease, Alzheimer's. And I tell the story of the scientific and cultural advances that led to that. But what made it a crisis was politics. What made it a crisis was the failure of political institutions to do the things that needed to be done to die, to care for those persons living with dementia and their caregivers. Um, and I mapped that all out across the first two parts of the book. Interesting. So let's talk about, and I'm sure these are the, the three areas that you get most questions about, and that is the diagnosis, the treatment, and a potential cure for Alzheimer's and and what the current science is is telling us about those three individual pillars. So first of all, diagnosis. In what way are we better off now than we were? And we've talked about how it was a few decades ago. Uh, How does the science benefit us now in terms of this diagnosis of this condition? Yeah, our ability to diagnose the disease is a story of spectacular progress in science. It really is. Namely, I recount in the first part of the book, Alzheimer's Unbound, how, you know, beginning at the 20, beginning at the beginning of the 21st century, 2000, you had to be diagnosed with dementia, disabling cognitive impairments 
to then have the physician say, well, I think the most likely cause of your dementia is Alzheimer's because of certain characteristics in your history and your exam. But I'm only going to know that your dementia is caused by Alzheimer's when you die. Because when you die, I will then be able to have the neuropathologist look at your brain and say, oh, the pathologies of Alzheimer's are visible here. So sort of a gothic horror story. I can't really tell you what's causing your dementia until you die. So you will never know. <laughs> Around the turn of this century, two events occurred that revolutionized uh, the way we think about what what is Alzheimer's and who has it. And in the first part of the book, Alzheimer's Unbound, I narrate these two events. Um, they occurred in very specific times and places. Uh, the one was in Midwest in the small city of Rochester, Minnesota, where a group of young uh, investigators led by a senior researcher essentially did a study that uncovered this idea of a risk state for developing dementia called mild cognitive impairment. Um, and the second event uh, is uh, two uh, collaborative uh, researchers in, at Pittsburgh um, who teamed up and were determined to figure out a way to use PET scan technologies to visualize amyloid in a living human. In other words, not wait till you die to see it, but to see it using a PET scan. And when you put those two events together, mild cognitive impairment and a PET scan that visualizes amyloid, you suddenly disrupted that whole architecture that I told you about that I had to say you have dementia to say you have Alzheimer's. Because as I recount in the book, what that those scientific advances have allowed us to do is label someone with Alzheimer's who does not have dementia, but only has mild cognitive impairment. And of course, where the field now is going is, can we label people with Alzheimer's disease regardless of whether they have cognitive impairment? That is to say, visualize the pathologies in someone who is doing a podcast <laughs> um, and, you know, otherwise functional, um, but has amyloid and tau and evidence of neurodegeneration. And that's, of course, where the field would like to go for early diagnosis and therefore, hopefully, of course, early intervention. And that's a, a very exciting field of, uh, and a set of advances that have unfolded over the last decade or two at most. Exactly. And does this move us potentially towards a, a time when perhaps we can all be tested without showing any symptoms at all for our potential to develop these conditions? Yeah, so, so it does. And I recount in the book how sort of, you know, the vision of the future that's sort of unfolding now, and I recount the studies and, and the work that I was part of in some of those studies, is to do tests, uh, biomarker tests, that label someone as on the trajectory of developing down the road dementia, and of course intervening with a drug to try and change that natural history. It's funny, when you talk to the Alzheimer's investigators, um, they're all jealous of the uh, cardiologists, you know, because I look at your cardiology colleagues with all their various tests who can diagnose heart disease when you're otherwise doing fine. But, you know, the, the cholesterol result, the blood pressure result, the, um, the, the, the uh, uh, calcium uh, scan, uh, uh, CAT scan of the chest, all will add up to, oh, you know, you need to be on a statin and an antihypertensive, et cetera. You know, the Alzheimer's field talks about that. Like, that's where we want to go, you know. Of course, there's something, I think, um, morally, ethically, socially quite different about being told, you know, you, you might develop heart disease down the road, so take these treatments 
versus, you know, you might develop dementia down the road, so take these treatments. I would argue the latter is pretty high-octane news for many of us, given how this is a disease that gets right at your identity, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And as science develops then, I wonder if there's going to come a time when we're obviously all very well aware of the benefits of, of eating a good diet, of taking plenty of exercise, but when we will better understand what we need to do in terms of our lifestyles to potentially prevent a, a disease like this. Yeah, so uh, two points. I'll just state this plainly and then get to the to the second one. I think we should look forward to a future where we can change the natural history of Alzheimer's disease and other diseases that cause dementia. That is to say slow the curve. For some, that may mean you never develop disabling cognitive impairments. For others, it may mean it didn't make a difference and they occurred. And, you know, for probably most it'll mean that, you know, you, you didn't get as sick as quickly as you could have or would have, but for these efforts. So I think we're going to, the point I make in the book uh, is we are not going to drug our way out of these problems. We're going to have to learn how to live with Alzheimer's disease, but I think live with it better than we have in the past. The second point I want to make is right now in the world, in America, in the world, we don't have a treatment that at the memory center, for example, I can type out a prescription and say with confidence, this will slow down the progress, the progression of your disease. We don't. There are some drugs under study, I'm sure we'll talk about, that might do that. But having said that, there's very good data gathered from multiple well-done studies for the last three, four decades that have a consistent finding across those studies, which is that the risk of developing dementia has been declining over the last three or four decades. There are still plenty of people with dementia because it's so related to age, and there are so many more people living into their 70s and 80s. But we don't see the expected numbers that we thought we would see because the risk is declining. And so you say, well, no, wait a minute. You just told me there's no effective treatment, and yet the risk of getting dementia has been declining. So what's going on here? Is there something wrong with measurement or the science? And I think the science is both is correct. And when you look at those studies that show the risk of dementia is declining, what you see is very consistent answers. And they start basically in childhood. Access to good education, um, at least through uh, you know uh, secondary school, through 12 years of education, has been shown to consistently reduce the likelihood of developing dementia. And then access and opportunity that follow from that as well, namely access to good health care, particularly cardiovascular care over the life course, has consistently been shown to reduce the risk of dementia. So there are real things that we can do right now in America to reduce our risk. We just have to have the political will to do them. Yeah, that's positive. So let's talk about treatment, and you, you've touched on it already. You, you talked of uh, developments with drugs, which is, is very significant. Of course, under the, the umbrella term treatment comes caring as well, right. which uh, perhaps equally as important to potential drug treatments. So where are we? First of all, let's talk about drugs in terms of uh, the most recent developments. Well, you know, um, uh, I, I recount a lot, a lot happened around the turn of the century. And at the turn of, of the 21st century, there were also some rather spectacular breakthroughs with approaches to targeting amyloid, one of the pathologies seen in Alzheimer's, that initially were really exciting, um, particularly if you were a transgenic mouse manufactured to develop Alzheimer's. I mean, we really cleared the, Alzheimer, the amyloid out of the mice, and they did better in the water maze tests. And this, these two drugs were rapidly translated into humans and tested in humans. And there, as I recount, um, we didn't do as well as the mice. And, and over the last two decades, where are we now? 
We have the ability to manipulate amyloid levels in the brain of a human. We, 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 we can do that. And we're beginning now in our studies to see that there may be an effect on the trajectory of decline. The studies that are, uh, have most recently been um, uh, pre presented in summer of the FDA now for review do not show a reversal. They do not show a flattening, if you will, of the course of the disease, but they show a separation, if you will, between those on drug versus not on drug, such that, again, it's sort of like, you know, bending the curve of decline as opposed to simply stopping it. And that's probably where we will be, assuming one of these treatments is shown actually to be effective after all the data are looked at. Um, so slow, but not halt. Now, might down the road we develop more effective treatments and innovate? Yep, absolutely. But I think that's, that's on the table. Um, so progress in therapeutics absolutely uh, has occurred. Um, still certainly more work to do in that space, though. And in terms of caring for loved ones uh, with dementia, there's a, a film out at the moment, The Father, starring Sir Anthony Hopkins. I don't know whether you've seen it or not, but that addresses head on the, the issues and, and the problems associated with someone who is very clearly exhibiting the progressive decline in terms of their cognitive abilities. Exactly. And, and that's where the crisis begins. So the crisis, as, especially in America, is that um, we have not set up the kind of healthcare system that we need to care for persons living with dementia and their family members. And I, I recount how, you know, when the Alzheimer's advocacy movement started essentially at the end of the 70s, 1980, when the organization that would come to be called the Alzheimer's Association was founded, you know, they had several agendas, raise awareness, research for a cure, and create a system of long-term care services and supports. I would argue that they certainly have succeeded on the first two, but no fault to them. They never achieved that third goal of a system of long-term care services and supports. So as it was then, it still is now that a family confronting how are we going to care for our relative who's developing disabilities from cognitive impairment is faced with figuring it out on your own. Um, an indifferent healthcare system, both for really getting a clear diagnosis, but worse, an indifferent long-term care social services and support system that is not routinely available, um, a patchwork at best. You know, we have Medicare to make sure you get the best of medical care in America, but we don't have an equivalent social insurance program to assure that you get long-term care so services and supports. We have a safety net in the form of Medicaid if you're poor enough and meet poverty thresholds, but there that care is rationed. People wait months, if not years, to get it. And, you know, it is the quality of it is only marginal because it's rationed and, and such. So America has uh, not been able to successfully arrive at a political consensus to create a system of long-term care services and supports um, to reduce the risk of, and the hazards of being a caregiver as well as being a person living with dementia. And that, that's a tragic story, which leads us to the crisis we have today in terms of the lack of good quality care. Yeah, and I think that is probably reflected in countries around the world. We've got a, a global audience for this, and uh, there are I know there are similar issues in other countries. Yeah, some, I will say, I don't want to try to make it sound like all unicorn and rainbows in, in, in Germany and the Netherlands, but, you know, I would hold out that those are two countries where, you know, they mustered the political will to set up a system of long-term care services and supports. In the Netherlands, after diagnosis of dementia, you have mandatory access to a care manager to help organize a, a care plan. You know, in Germany, there's a long-term care um, a, a social insurance program available to all 
um, regardless of you know whether it's dementia or whatever the cause of disability is. It's paid out of a payroll tax that all ger- uh, all citizens, uh, all, all Germans uh, pay into. So I think other nations have been a little bit more uh, thoughtful around this and, and, and th- than we have uh, uh, here in the States. And I think more generally, uh, leaving aside the, the, the structural basis of how healthcare systems are, are set up, I think one important issue is is purely education. And perhaps this is where conversations like this come in, in terms of helping people understand the condition, because I think that's a, a big part of the, the problems that people have with caring, is simply not understanding what they're dealing with and what their loved one is doing and what the progression is likely to be so they can, the carers can prepare themselves for the next stage and for the next stage and for the next stage. Yeah, I remember, uh, 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 you know, one of the most common questions asked in the memory center, in addition to what's the difference between Alzheimer's disease and dementia, another of the most common questions is what to expect in the future. Um, and I, I think families breathe a sigh of relief when you sit down and sort of explain, here's where we are now in terms of stage, and here in the coming months, years, is the things to look out for, and therefore how to plan. Because I think it's the case oftentimes when people hear the word Alzheimer's, you know, they just immediately go to the sort of advanced stage of the disease and they think, well, you know, the person will be unable to recognize me, bathe, dress, groom, feed, and toilet and not able to live in the home, you know, next year. Where, where, you know, for many patients, of course, that's just simply not the case, you know, because they're diagnosed years ahead of those events if those events are going to happen at all. Um, and again, you know, the, I think that's the healthcare system's responsibility to provide that kind of education to patients and especially to family members. And again, in many healthcare systems, that's, um, scattered at best. Um, you know, the, 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 it's like diagnosis and adiosis. You know, you get your diagnosis and then you're on your own, you know, and that, that's just unacceptable. As I mentioned earlier, you include many, many stories in your book, personal stories, very sad stories in many cases. What would you like your readers to take away from this book? If there's, there's one thought, if there's one impact that you would like to have on people, as they read this and and digest and assimilate some of these uh, really heart-wrenching stories, what would it be? Yeah, um, this is a disease of our autonomy. This is a disease of our identity. It is a morally challenging disease, both for the persons who have it and for the persons who care for them. It seems ordinary and quotidian uh, in terms of the problems that people have, but it gets to the heart of some very morally and ethically charged aspects about what it means to live a good life when you're losing your ability to determine that life yourself. Um, that, that I think is, is a sort of awareness point I want to make. The other awareness raising point I want to make, I know you asked for one, but I'll give you two, is it didn't have to be this way. You know, when I look at the events that unfolded beginning in the early 20th century to now, there were so many opportunities to not, uh, be in the crisis that we're in now. And yet, Sometimes unwittingly, sometimes wittingly, we allowed ourselves to be where we are. And, you know, I, I recount in the book, you know, the events in early 20th century Germany, which essentially shut down the progress that was occurring there. And, and fast forward, of course, I've already narrated how, particularly in the States, um, politics of welfare and other um, cultural and political events have thwarted progress. And I am curious because this is a podcast about human longevity. We talk about the interventions that we can bring to ourselves, lifestyle interventions, whether it's doing more exercise, eating a a more appropriate diet, 
with the goal of of living longer and better. It's not about living forever, but it's just about having a good health span and, and optimizing the number of healthy years that we have. I, I'm just curious, with your experience dealing with dementia, how you live your life, perhaps with your own longevity in mind. We all think about yes. what it's going to be like in a few decades' time. Are there lessons that you personally have learned that you apply to yourself? Yes, I'm very mindful about stress. Why am I experiencing it? Do I the causes of it, and how can I address those causes? Um, uh, so I pay very good attention. For example, why am I waking up at two in the morning, and what do I need to do to to avoid that early morning wakening from whatever anxiety I have? And do you have a solution to that? Uh, like a lot of us do that and wonder why, and then it happens again the next day and the next. Yeah, day. well, you know, I'm, I'm very mindful about you know what are the interactions I'm having and what are the decisions I've made that have been causing me stress and distress. Um, I, I, when I'm done with this conversation, I'll be biking to downtown Philadelphia, not driving. Um, you know, and, uh, later today I might end up at the, uh, there's a, 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 a croc center I go to, which has a marvelous Olympic pool. So I, I've made exercise sort of a, a very just sort of it, just routine part of my life. And, and, you know, I'm mindful of a diet that's heart healthy. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, really pay attention to, you know, what I put in, you know, what, what's a heart healthy diet. Um, and, uh, uh, those are just part of my sort of just good habits to maintain good brain health. And I, um, I certainly, I'm a subscriber as well to the red wine hypothesis that, uh, uh, regular consumption of red wine reduces the risk of dementia. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that, that was a good point you made there in terms of brain health, because I think a lot of people still think that uh, cycling, swimming, physical exercise might benefit our muscles, but it, it, it's much broader than that, isn't it? Absolutely. No, the data there are very compelling. Well, look, I really uh, found your book fascinating. It was enthralling, to use the jargon. It's a page-turner, and I think it's because of the way that you've written it, because well, you do you. meld the stories and, and very interesting science and, and politics as well, which, as we've explored in this interview, is, uh, I think, crucially important going ahead. Dr. Jason Carlwish, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Peter. It was marvelous. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, I will put a link in the show notes for this episode, the Live Long and Master Aging website, lamapodcast.com. That's double L-A-M-A podcast.com. The Problem of Alzheimer's is also available as an audiobook from Audible. And I'm pleased to say this podcast is now also on that platform. If you have an account, just go to audible.com, search for Live Long and Master Aging, and you will find each and every one of our more than 140 episodes there, free of charge for your enjoyment. Go for a walk and listen to us. Wherever you find us, take care, and thank you so much for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Ruud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.